According to an August 2nd article published by Crane's Chicago Business, more than 47,000 Illinois residents lost Medicaid coverage. Illinoisans lost coverage beginning on August 1st as the federal government resumed Medicaid redeterminations after pausing them during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Medicaid coverage cliff in Illinois reflects a nationwide phenomenon with about 15 million people in the U.S. expected to lose coverage. Fortunately, safety net hospitals and clinics across Chicago and Illinois are required to provide care to all individuals regardless of their insurance status. And these facilities often serve as a critical resource for uninsured individuals seeking medical attention. August 1st also marked the beginning of Illinois' Free and Charitable Clinics Awareness Month. As a critical part of Illinois' healthcare safety net ecosystem, Illinois Free and Charitable Clinics provide health and social services to people without access, regardless of their ability to pay. In today's episode of the HD3 Podcast, we had the opportunity to sit down with Stephanie Wilding, the CEO of Community Health, the nation's largest free and charitable clinic located right here in Chicago. Steph stepped into her role at Community Health in November of 2019, just a few months before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. That said, her tenure at Community Health has not been without its challenges. But as you'll hear in our conversation with her, she is unwavering in her mission and vision to empower individuals and communities to live healthier, more fulfilling lives. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillips. This episode of the HC3 podcast is sponsored by HC3's managing entity, Third Horizon Strategies. Third Horizon Strategies is a consulting firm focused on shaping a future system that actualizes a sustainable culture of health nationwide. The firm offers a 360-degree view of complex challenges across three horizons, past, present, and future to help industry leaders and policymakers interpret signals and trends, design integrated systems, and enact changes that all communities, families, and individuals can thrive. With staff located in 10 states across the U.S., Third Horizon Strategies is available to support organizations with services ranging from strategic planning, program implementation, research, and data analytics. Learn more about who we are and what we do at thirdhorizonstrategies.com. Before we begin the episode, we want to make sure our listeners are aware that certain parts of today's episode include a few sensitive topics like violence, death, trauma, and sexual assault. The stories that are shared hold significance and relevance to our discussion. However, we thought it was critical to just give a heads up about the complex nature of these subjects. So without further delay, let's get into the conversation. Community Health is the nation's largest volunteer-based free health center. And for those who are not familiar with what a free health center is, if you're familiar with a federally qualified health center, what I like to say is, How we provide our care, the work that we do is just like a federally qualified health center. It's just how we pay for it is a little bit different. And how we pay for it means it does impact the model of care a little bit. So Community Health for 30 years has been operating as a free clinic. We provide primary care services. We also currently have over 25 different specialty care services. We have behavioral health, dental care, pharmacy, health education, community outreach, And again, all of these services are provided to our primarily uninsured patients at no charge to them. So we're completely free. We don't bill for our services and we don't charge the patients either. So 30 years old, talk a little bit about its establishment. How how did it come together? What was the vision? Yeah, so 30 years ago, our founder, Dr. Serafino Gorella, went door to door in the community to ask people if they had access to healthcare. And he was really astonished to find that more than half of the doors that he knocked on, folks did not have access to healthcare. And so that is really the spirit in that moment that was born that is community health today, which is Dr. Serafino said, I'm going to do something about this. And he leveraged his personal and professional networks and resources to bring in volunteer doctors, to find a space, to raise a little bit of money and to open community health in a small storefront. 
And that spirit, which I like to call the Serafino effect, which is we identify a problem and we act quickly and do something that's right for the people and the patients is still present today, you know, 30 years later. Set that in today's context as you think about all the different communities of the Chicago area and you think about identifying where those needs are. How do you guys typically go about that and kind of what's the process when you've identified a need that may not be being met? Maybe it's not something community health naturally does today, but you know there's that need. What do you do? So talk process for identification, process for delivering. Yeah, well, I can actually give a very real life, very recent example of how this has manifested. So in the city of Chicago right now, we have a migrant crisis. We have received nearly 12,000 individuals, possibly more from border states in the last year. And there is a major humanitarian crisis. Currently, there are nearly 900 people living at police precincts across the city and another 5,000 more plus living at temporary shelter throughout the city. This spring, the pace at which the buses arrived just increased exponentially than what it had been before. And the city identified a need for people in the police precincts to receive medical care on site at the police precincts. They reached out to community health. So the need in this case was identified for us by the city of Chicago, who we partner with. And from the time the city identified this problem and asked us how we could help till the moment we had launched a street medicine program, it was less than 10 days. So in less than 10 days from being asked to the moment we were actually providing care on the ground in the police precinct was 10 days. And I think that that's an example of both the culture of community health that has started with our founder, with Serafino, but also as an example of the nimbleness and flexibility that can be tapped into of a free clinic. When we think about our business model, it has three pillars, volunteerism, philanthropy, and partnerships. In order to get that program set up, we immediately tapped into our existing volunteer base while calling out to a new volunteer base for recruitment. We reached out to key donors and funders to let them know what we were doing so that we could secure private philanthropy to support the effort. And we relied on our partnerships, for example, with the city for placement at the police precincts, but also for a number of weeks, we were going out with Lori Children's and they were providing care for the kiddos and we were providing care for the adults. And so our business model has really allowed us to remain nimble and flexible. And when you combine that with the culture that has been in place in the organization throughout our history, it really means that we're able to adapt and change readily to meet the needs on the ground in the moment. That moment right now is the migrant crisis. But as you can imagine, this approach was also taken in the last three years during, during the pandemic. And so one of the key themes there, of course, is mobilizing this volunteer base that you have. So talk a little bit more about that base. Kind of what are the different, quote unquote, jobs those volunteers do? How many of them do you have? How do you recruit them, retain them? All of that good stuff. Yeah. So again, a free health center operates just like a federally qualified health center would. In our case, a number of those positions, instead of being paid employees, though, are volunteers. That includes all of our providers. So we have nearly 300, I think, medical providers providing our care from primary care docs and mid-levels to specialists. We also have triage workers, lab workers. We have interpreters. And in fact, we have, I believe it's now 250 interpreters across 22 states because we do remote interpretation thanks to the pandemic. This was one of our innovations. So you can find community health in a city near you if you want to be an interpreter. So our volunteer services program operates like an HR department in many ways. We have a formal recruitment process, a formal onboarding process. You are required to volunteer a certain number of hours or shifts based on each provider type and or volunteer type. I mean, it really does operate like a standard HR department with policies, procedures, et cetera. It's incredibly organized and is a monumental effort, as you can imagine, to manage. But again, when we think about free clinics, I think the thing that people often visualize is like a church basement in a room. And there are those, and those are necessary. Those access points where they don't exist, particularly in rural spaces, are incredibly valuable. And there are also free health centers that are like community health, where we do have really robust systems and processes, but still retain that really unique nimbleness of being a free clinic. Because when we do anything, 
The first question we ask ourselves is what does the patient or the community need? The first question we do not ask ourselves is can I bill for it? And I think that that's a really key distinction that, you know, when I think about what can the healthcare industry learn from free clinic leadership, that's an example of something that even in my previous roles, I had to do as well, that I think is a lesson that can be learned from other leaders in what free clinics do. Along those lines, you basically run an HR recruitment process for volunteers. And as we reflect on the rest of the healthcare ecosystem, there are workforce challenges. So have you experienced an influx of change to the volunteer base and the motivation for the volunteers to volunteer their time when in their regular time as providers, it's very challenging across the board. So what are some of the opportunities and challenges that you faced in the wake of the fact that there are broader workforce challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think anywhere in the healthcare ecosystem is not escaping healthcare challenges. And that includes the employees that we have here at Community Health. It is a tough time to work in healthcare. I think from our volunteer base building perspective, though, that has been beneficial for us. So during the last, you know, three and a half years during the pandemic, we have had providers who, you know, have really felt burnt out. What we hear a lot from our medical providers, especially, is that at Community Health, they can practice medicine the way that it was supposed to be practiced because we're not setting up churn and burn clinic sessions. You know, our, our patient appointments are 30 minutes. We have everything under one roof from specialty care to pharmacy to behavioral health. You know, I think we've seen another wave of that with the migrant crisis and folks understanding what's happening in the environment and wanting to be able to do something not only as a medical provider, but also as non-clinical folks, where we do have a lot of volunteer opportunities in, for example, triage, or when we're doing care at the precinct, just interfacing with the patients and finding out what their needs are and how we can help them. I always go back to this coordination piece that's really unique, that it's all under one roof and that you can, from my experience in talking to some of the providers, there is more of a direct relationship with the pharmacist to the provider, which isn't very common or well-practiced in the real world because we're very siloed in the real world with the way that we look at the healthcare system, that everything needs to be separated. So do you have any other examples besides the sort of interplay between a pharmacist and a provider, but maybe the behavioral health sector or other pieces within the clinic that help that coordination and the other support services that you add to the holistic approach to care that you give to your patients? So one of the ways that I like to talk about this is when we think about a diabetic patient and in the communities that we serve, diabetes is a prevalent diagnosis. We know in under-resourced communities, there are greater health disparities and diabetes is one of the big ones. So when you think about an uninsured diabetic patient who comes to community health, under one roof in a coordinated effort, which includes using common EMR systems, notes, et cetera, but also just being co-located and fully integrated, this diabetic patient can not only see their primary care provider, they can also see their endocrinologist, they could see their nephrologist, they can see a podiatrist. If they also have a comorbidity of hypertension, they can see a cardiologist, they can receive their medication, they can then coordinate between the pharmacy and our nursing team to receive education around that medication. They can attend a healthy cooking class, do some Zumba, maybe some yoga. Perhaps they also need to see our behavioral health provider because they are struggling with something at home that's impacting their disease. And then they can also see our dentist and do all of that under one roof at no charge to them. There's no place else in the city where that exists for an uninsured diabetic patient. And when we think about the coordination of care is certainly there. And the way that we know that it is, is because of the health outcomes that we see for that patient type. And at Community Health, a diabetic patient under our care has their disease largely under control. The health outcomes that we have around chronic disease management, cancer, preventive cancer screenings, we rank in the top quartile of health centers, whether you're free or a federally qualified health center in the city of Chicago because of that not only comprehensive, but also coordinated model of care. So the volunteer base, of course, is uncompensated, and, and that obviously is able to help you go further and faster in all the work you're describing community health does. Uh, obviously, you have other fixed costs, and since you're not charging anyone for these things, my economics, my advanced economics degree tells <laughs> me 
you must have money coming from somewhere else. So talk a little bit about the different funding streams. How have those changed over the last few years? Our industry is in such an incredible state of inflection and flux right now. Like, How are you anticipating funding changing over the next decade? So one of the things I really tried to reiterate with folks, because a common statement that I am told is that as a free health center that doesn't bill for our services, we're not sustainable. And I really challenged that notion. One, because anyone in the serving in the safety net healthcare system is struggling financially. So that's important to note. But also, I want to always talk about funding and fueling our mission is more than just dollars. Because there's the volunteerism piece, but we also have a partnership component where, for example, we partner with the large academic medical institutions in Chicago on their medical training programs, both medical students and residents. Those are examples of really consistent availability of providers and a secondary mission for us to serve as a training ground for those future providers. But we also partner with large corporations who, for example, in our pharmacy, donate formulary the value of which of that is significant. Um, We also partner with Quest Diagnostics, who processes all of our labs for free, which is a significant investment in our mission. So when we're talking about funding streams and how we fund and fuel, in some ways, community health actually has a great deal of diversity in how we fund and fuel our mission because we aren't just reliant on billing or a foundation grant or a state grant. We really have that diversity in in in-kind goods and services, as well as dollars raised. In terms of that piece though, that second pillar in our business model, which is philanthropy, generally speaking, community health has really strived in the last few years during the pandemic to make sure that we're raising the brand, not only of this organization, but of the entire free and charitable clinic sector. This is a sector, you know, in Illinois, there are 52 free and charitable clinics, and we are doing incredible work. We are the places where when an uninsured person walks through our doors, our business models are built to support care for them. They are not considered unfunded. And so we are a key pillar in the healthcare ecosystem. And in fact, we're a pillar with sort of tentacles that as we grow, we, we sort of fill in the cracks that exist in the foundation of the healthcare ecosystem. And we support other places like health centers and hospitals when we're able to take up more space. And so we have really, as a sector, been trying to build that brand in the philanthropic community and also at the state level. Last year was the first year that the state of Illinois supported free and charitable clinics. And that funding flowed through the Illinois Department of Public Health, really demonstrating that the state sees free and charitable clinics as part of the public health system and as a key pillar in the ecosystem. That funding was renewed for a second year this year, albeit reduced, but I think everyone received a lot of reductions in their state funding. It was an interesting legislative season, to say the least. And so that continued and renewed funding further demonstrates that the state wants to invest in free and charitable clinics. And in fact, the governor has made several statements at press conferences recently about the role that free clinics play. And so my hope is one that we'll continue to see moving forward, continued investment from the state, because we are out here doing this work in a pandemic, outside of a pandemic. And until there is a solution that is universal for every single resident in Illinois, regardless of documentation status, there's a need for free and charitable clinics and partnering with the state is a really effective way to ensure that folks get access to care. And also I would add cost effective, you know, at community health for every dollar placed into the organization, we provide $7 worth of care. So there's a great deal of cost efficiency in this investment as well. On the philanthropic side, there's a lot of opportunity around large corporate and foundation supporters and investors until there's a universal solution to healthcare access for everyone. Free and charitable clinics have to be seen and integrated as a pillar in the response. And our local locations, our use of community health workers, our adaptability to the community needs are all examples of making investments in our sector that can really advance quality of care and access to care in the communities that need it most. We kind of have a slightly euphemistic way of breaking up 
the different nonprofit parts of our industry. And so if I was kind of looking at nonprofit providers, I might kind of put them into three buckets, the free and charitable, which would be by far the minority, but they certainly exist. The safety nets, right? So the CCBHCs, the FQHCs and others that bill for their services, but kind of operate in similar ways to community health. And kind of the nonprofit hospitals who, yeah, nonprofit on paper, but are paying their CEOs, you know, two to five million dollars a year and have Steinway pianos and music themed water features in their lobbies. And I'm now I'm being really euphemistic, but what are the kinds of things other nonprofit providers, and I'm not going to name names in our city, but what are the kinds of things they could be learning from a community health to both improve or increase their efficiency, but to also be delivering more care to more people in communities that need it? I'll give you an example, and then I'll kind of tie it up with a bullet point. During the pandemic at one point, someone asked us how we were doing such an exceptional job at tracking the blood pressure of our hypertensive patients and how we were staying on top of that and what was our tech and they wanted this tech or maybe this tech. And what they were talking to me about was a very complicated solution to a very simple problem. And for us, what we did is we just handed out blood pressure cuffs. We produced a YouTube video on how to use them. We created a hotline that you could call when you had questions and you were given a log in order to keep track of your BP because our communities don't have consistent access to smartphones and these complicated solutions weren't going to work for us. And also they were going to take nine months to implement and we needed to do it now. We needed to know how our patients were doing now. And so I think that it is not uncommon, especially in larger systems to overcomplicate solutions and to make it harder than it needs to be. And that's not geared at anyone, that's just like generally, you know, and when I think about what the health industry can learn from a free clinic like community health, that's one of the things is sometimes those simpler solutions go a long way, especially when you're working with communities that are under-resourced, that have great barriers in accessing care and keeping up on care. Keeping it simple and direct can go a very long way in impacting health outcomes and also trust with the patients. I mean, think about you as an end user, as a patient. You don't want things to be complicated either. Our communities don't want that, that either. And so we're always keeping them in mind. You know, I think when we talk about other ways that we can be increasing access to care through these large nonprofit entities and hospitals, one of the ways that I think some and some of them are doing this, so I, I do want to note that is around the role of community health workers. Some of the most effective efforts that we saw during the pandemic focused on health equity when it came to COVID were folks going door to door, block by block, using census level data to determine who needed to be outreached to and deploying those resources. That's something that we need to maintain. And when we look at other health systems across the world, actually, some of the more successful, albeit universal health systems, they still do a lot of the care outside the four walls of the hospitals, of the doctor's offices. They're placing people inside folks' homes so that they can truly understand what their needs are, work with them directly, and give them that face time that's needed. And that's an investment that nonprofit hospitals can make and can partner with organizations like Community Health or like FQHCs to have those community health workers funnel those patients into the, the medical homes that make sense for them. And that builds access, but it builds the right kind of access to care that is needed, which I don't know that all of the nonprofit hospitals are the right fit for a patient, yeah. whether that's location, whether that's language, whether that's their insurance status. So how can nonprofit hospitals invest in those boots on the ground that then bring people into a medical home that makes sense for them and keeps those patients healthy and out of the emergency departments of those nonprofit hospitals? I've thought on so many occasions over time that if we were to take off the money nonprofit hospitals are investing back in the community to uphold or sustain their tax exempt status, and you're going to 
centralize that in some way and then coordinate it vis-a-vis -a, -vis a function like community health workers that, that almost served or function as a utility across the city. And they were just directing patients based on coverage to the right places of care you know, at the right time based on the needs. It would just, we would get so much more than we get out of like the accounting trickery of charity care, checking my tax exempt box or funding a 5k or what I'm not trying to, to diminish the impact those things make, but there's a tremendous amount of money caught up in the, in the, these tax exemptions. And there is zero facilitation of those funds. And what you're describing about the evidence-based real impact effect of boots on the ground. Um, with relationships in the community that can help to identify, triage, navigate, and follow up on the care needs of, of communities, families, and individuals. God, it would be so powerful, and yet we don't do any of those things. So systemically, I, I, yeah, systemically, and I would I would say from a systemic perspective, you know, if we're really talking about where that should be happening, I mean, now it's a discussion of the decades-long disinvestment in our public health systems. Yeah. Because really, that's based on how healthcare is set up in this country. That's where that should be happening. And when we talk about the role of nonprofit hospitals potentially doing that, that would be filling the void that our public health systems are supposed to be doing. But for decades upon decade until the pandemic, we've had disinvestment after disinvestment. And so, well, I, I certainly hear what you're saying around the charity care and maintaining that exemption status, you know, at least for community health, we do feel really grateful at the amazing partnerships that we have with our nonprofit hospitals and their continued willingness to hear our innovative ideas on what else they could be doing. But I think that there's another layer here, which is how we are all trying to fill the holes of a lack of a universal government funded and sponsored solution. The latest stat that I read was 47,000 Illinois residents lost Medicaid as of August 1st. So, yep. I mean, that's a devastating number of people that are now uninsured and there's only 52 clinics theoretically, and not all of them have the full depth and breadth of services, not to undermine any free clinics mm -hmm. in Illinois, but they only have certain capacity and that influx of patients, it's like, where are they going? So that that's we always say the safety net under the safety net with the free clinic sector um, because their catchment is unique. But to go back to the earliest part of the story is, you know, I had the very esteemed privilege of meeting Dr. Garala before he passed. And there is a Serafino effect. There is a warmth and a trust in him as a human. But I think just the actions that he took when he founded this place and the foundation that it was built on was this in your home, door to door friendly neighbor experience. And to your point just now, it's really interesting to think about how do we get out of the mindset that we have to make people travel two hours on a bus to come to this facility, to have all of these things taken care of, whether or not sometimes that might be necessary because of the limitations of equipment and other things. But we're starting to recognize from a health equities perspective that health is so much more expansive and, and so much more than just what's physically happening and what you're checking, but it's also the environmental factors. Mm -hmm. So as you guys rethink space in place and, and some of the expansion that community health has had, especially in recent years, what has that looked like to expand what that footprint looks like and reaching the patients where they are? Yeah. So kind of take you back to, this is probably April of 2020. We're a month in or so to doing the bulk of our care by telehealth. And at the time we were making changes so rapidly, they were almost hard to keep track of. So, you know, we decided to keep track of them and to also take a look at what were the outcomes of the changes that we were making. And one of the first things that we noticed is in moving to telehealth, our no-show rate, which is the rate at which a patient doesn't show up for an appointment and doesn't call to cancel, had plummeted. And it was like a light bulb moment where when we asked ourselves, why is this happening? We were like, oh, right, we're just calling the patient on the phone now. And that means they can take the medical appointment from a break on work, they can take it from home. And during that time, we were also hearing from our community and our patients just how hard it was to maintain their health and wellness because they didn't have access to food. They had already been food insecure. Maybe they had missed a few shifts at work because our patients were folks who continued to have to go to work, but they may have missed some shifts and now they were more food insecure. And so 
those two things really culminated into how can we meet our patients where they're at and how do we do better at the factors that impact their health and wellness that we may not directly provide. Because at the time we were directly providing food access and we learned very quickly that it takes a monumental effort to do that successfully. And out of those two ideas was born this concept of a microsite where we would open up a small location co-located inside of an existing community-based organization that would essentially place a door in those communities. Um, At the time, Community Health had one location in Humboldt Park, but nearly 30% of our patients came from Belmont Cragen, which is 80 minutes one way on public transportation. So when you think about what it took for that patient, say that diabetic patient who has to come in four times a year for their labs, that means that's a half day off of work that's finding childcare, that's potentially being more food insecure that week because they took a half a day off of work. So we decided to place a door in the community with a microclinic, but also for that diabetic patient, when they said, I don't have access to food this week, we now were co-located inside of a partner, Onward Neighborhood House, who we could just tell them to go up the hall and connect with the food access coordinator who would make sure that they could get healthy foods today. And so for community health, we, Our great, one of our great, we've had many, many lessons in the last three years, but our greatest was really challenging ourselves as leaders to always rethink space and place for point of care, to meet our patients where they're at, rather than requiring them to come to us, and to always do so with the eye of full and complete wellness. And so we've opened a second microsite location in the little village neighborhood and plan to continue expanding that model because the power of placing an access door in those historically disinvested communities is really, really powerful. And I think, you know, kind of going back to an earlier question is another thing that the healthcare industry can learn from community health. You know, I've been in a number of meetings in the last year where people ask me, how do I increase access to this? How do I increase access to that? And the conversation always finds its way to transportation and bus passes. And let's just give everybody a bus pass and then they can get to that mammography place four neighborhoods away. And I really encourage everyone to think, how can we actually bring that service to the community and do so in in, in untraditional ways? It doesn't have to be a 50,000 square foot facility in the community. You know, our first microsite was 500 square feet. We hope to be expanding that location next year. So it'll definitely have more access, which is fantastic. But, you know, I think in healthcare, we always think in quantity of more, more and more. Size, yeah. You know, and here's a great story of how we look at impacted community health. We had went out to the police precinct with our mobile care team a few weeks ago, and we only saw three patients that day. And so by any measure in healthcare, including to a certain degree us. Abject failure. Total failure day. Total failure day, right? Everyone should just be feeling shamed and, you know, all these resources for nothing. Except for there was one patient that was seen that day. had traveled very far with her two-year-old to come to this country. And during her visit, she asked for a pregnancy test, and we did one. And when it came back positive, it was very clear that this was not happy news to her. And our incredibly talented provider and team there were able to talk to this patient and to learn that along her journey, her and her two-year-old had been kidnapped, and she had been sexually assaulted, and this pregnancy was the result of that assault. And by a stroke of luck, she had been bused to Chicago, which is a safe haven for any reproductive service she might need. And she did not wish to continue this pregnancy. She had some concerns about her safety with her partner. And so we were able to connect her with the services that she needed to safely and privately end her pregnancy and secure her safety, secure the safety of her two-year-old and impact that two-year-old's life and the generations behind that two-year-old. And so in healthcare, when we think about impact so often, we want more, more, more. But I, I think we're missing the mark. And that day was such a reconfirmation for me 
that yeah, there were only three patients served that day, but that ripple effect from those three patients, that's gonna be felt for generations. And so we need to, to keep redefining things for ourselves and challenging ourselves as leaders to redefine what impact means in healthcare because the more, more, more model, it's, it's leaving people behind. I, I love the way it's a beautiful story, and I love the way you framed it about you know just this notion around intergenerational impact um, because it's very real. And you're right; like our industry in this country is so transactional and not relational. We don't think about people as people outside of the four walls of a of a di- you know facilitating a diagnostic or a service or a procedure, whatever the case may be. But you're right; like game out the alternate scenario. You weren't open that day. There was not that access door in the community to go through, and hence there may have not been any access, or probably was no other access door to go through. And you can play out all the different scenarios that may have occurred for that woman and her two-year-old child, but but the, the sheer fact that you were there takes you in a completely different direction. And you can't put a return to capital, return yeah. on investment, you know, quantifiable measure to that because that is, number one, you don't even know exactly what you're measuring, but number two, you know you're just doing something good for some for some other human who hasn't had it as good as many of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say all that stuff, but hearing stories like that, it was a reminder to you that, that now you're reminding me and then even the power of those stories mm-hmm. have a reverberating. Well, it's about building islands of safety. Oh, did you just come up with that? I did not. I have Damn to, it. I have to be very, very clear. Uh, that's the second term <laughs> I've learned today that I'm like coining from you access doors and then islands of safety. Yeah. So islands of safety, you know, this was, oh gosh, like a little over a year ago, I was meeting with Dr. Thomas Fisher. And at the time we knew that Roe was going to fall. It hadn't yet. And we also were seeing a major surge of anti-trans healthcare laws across the country. And I was just saying like, you know, healthcare is going backwards. Like, what are we doing? And Dr. Fisher, you know, reminded me that the journey to healthcare justice is unlikely to happen in our lifetime. And in fact, very unlikely to happen in our lifetime and very likely will be many lifetimes from us. And he really challenged me in that conversation. You know, what are the islands of safety that we are going to build in our lifetime? And I really added to that. What are the islands of safety we're going to build and protect? Because if we've learned anything in the last few years, it's that we also have to protect these islands of safety. And so when I think about the island of safety that community health is building, I think about that patient. And I think about what her options would have been if she had not found community health as her safety island that day. You know, that's why it's so important to us that we continue as an organization, just continue to build those and protect them. I also find that the foundation that community health and several other of the free clinic sector have built into community with your patients is this relationship and this trust in that relationship. I just find it so interesting that even, I mean, if we think of ourselves as patients and consumers, we constantly go to our trusted sources Mm -hmm. for what we should do, where to go, whether it's for our medical care or for anything even more simple than that. But especially in our medical care, there is a certain amount of trust. And especially for the example that you gave with this woman who has experienced a very difficult journey. A traumatic, um, a lot deeply of, traumatic journey. Yeah. Absolutely. And a lot of the other I always, I always equate it that people aren't just coming to community health to establish their medical home because they're healthy. It's because they're not healthy and mm-hmm. they're trying to fix their problems. So, you know, how are you continuing to build trust and look for those avenues to continue that referral source to keep that steady flow of many patients that continue to come back here? Some of them have been with the clinic since inception, but the expansion of that around that and the amount of folks that continue to come, you know, how do you sustain that and make sure that they become patients and that it's not just a one and done? It's always like, 
How are you getting them to come back and staying on top of them and making sure that they are getting that full package that they deserve? Yeah. So in the vaccine rollout, we all learned a new term that we use a lot, which is trusted messenger. And so when we think about community health and how patients find us, it's often through that trusted messenger. And we still do some bus ad you know, pieces of that. That's some about brand raising. But when we talk about raising our brand in the community, it's those trusted messengers. And sometimes it's one-to-one, right? You're asking that person where you should go. But what we're trying to do at Community Health is to build sort of pulpits of trusted messengers. So I think our microclinics is a great example of that. When we moved into the Little Village neighborhood, we opened up inside of Enlace, which is a known trusted partner in that community. And immediately our appointments were filled completely with new patients because Enlace had their team, had their workers out there saying, this is a place for you to come. This is a place for you to come for free healthcare. I will also add that is often a key piece that matters to people is that it's free. We don't charge a sliding scale fee. They will not receive a fake or real bill. There's no fees associated with our care. That free piece means a lot. You don't even have a billing department. I don't have a billing department. No. (laughs) I will credit the patients, though. There's a lovely little slot at the front for people to give back, and patients do. And I don't know. They gave $30,000 last year. I mean, that's just. Our patients donated $30,000 in total. Yeah. Yes. So. Incredible. Yeah. So are we. Sorry on this, just real quick. Like, what an incredible, no higher praise than than people who really can't afford to give $30,000 but are so just hold you in such a high regard that they want to make that contribution back. Well, I think that's also an example. You know, I I was at an event recently where someone told me that they don't believe in free care, which I was like, all right, we should probably talk about this in a difference. (laughs) (laughs) Hold my earrings. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) But but I I think what, what they mean is that everyone wants to feel like they're engaged and empowered in their care. And donations are an example of that. They're not only an indication of how our patients feel about community health, they're an example that patients do want to engage and be active in their care. And you know, $2 here, $3 there is how they can say that and say thank you. But that free health care, it is my favorite, favorite, favorite thing ever when one of our front desk team members comes to me and is like, Steph, it happened again. A patient was checking out and just needed to know how much they were going to owe for today's visit. And we had to tell them over and over and over again, it was free and they were not going to receive a bill. There was no charge to them. And they are just in complete disbelief. They're like, even for my medication. And yes, even for your medication, because this is not a concept that exists here. There is always a cost for healthcare, especially for those who don't have health insurance. And so having those trusted messengers to communicate to a larger audience as opposed to doing one-to-one, which I think is what we had previously always relied on, we've really tried to be strategic in how we build partnerships so that we have these larger scale entities that are known and trusted by the community who are saying, you know what, go to community health. And that is no more true than right now in the middle of the migrant crisis. We're obviously on the front lines, but we're not the only ones and we are, we're just being inundated with new patient referrals right now because individuals who are also on the ground doing this work know that they can send these potential patients to community health and that they'll be safe, they'll be well taken care of, and they won't have to worry about the cost of their care. Steph, I've known you for a while now and I'm not blowing smoke when I tell you you were incredibly affable, your emotional intelligence is off the chart, you are extraordinarily smart. Like you're, you're the full package, Thank right? You. <laughs> you could be working in private equity. You could be an EVP or a CEO for a big health. So like you, those are all things in your capability set. And, and I'm sure you could be making a multiple of what you're making now from a compensation perspective. Why do you choose to do this work? Why have you made that trade-off in your life to spend this part of your career running community health? Yeah. So one, since I have been a young child, my dad would always say that I would root for the underdog and that I'm his hummingbird on speed. And so from being a young child, I would volunteer, I would do things. So I've always been called to service. 
But my, my plan actually was always to go to law school. So took the LSATs and everything and wanted to take a year off after undergrad and just work. And at the time I got a job at a federally qualified health center on their development team. And a few years before I had started at that health center, my younger sister, her name is Liz, she was 16, she was murdered. A few months after I started at this job, I learned a little bit more about the man who took her life. And he had suffered his entire life with severe and persistent mental illness. And I heard from his family. And the words that always stuck in my head was hearing his mom say to me, not she didn't say it to me, she said it to the court, but it felt like it was to me, healthcare isn't set up for people like us. And I proceeded to hear how much they tried to get this man help and to get him the help that he, he really needed. And he was sick and he needed help. And they were just before the Affordable Care Act and they couldn't afford it. And as a result, he turned to using you know, street drugs for his own treatment. And because the safety net didn't catch him, he will not get to live a full, fulfilling life. But also, I'll spend the rest of mine wondering who Liz would have been. And so every day, the safety net doesn't catch people. And that's my story of what happened and why I am compelled to not only do this work, but to do it with urgency. Because going back to that example a few minutes ago, if we hadn't been there that day, what would have happened to that woman? She would have been lost. We would not have caught her. And so when we do our work, it's not just what we do, it's how we do it. And I live my life with great passion and purpose on purpose and with urgency because Liz fell through the safety net, the man who took her life fell through the safety net, and more and more do every single day, and we can't wait. We have to work hard with purpose on purpose every single day. Well, I'm so glad you took it back to the, the story you shared a few minutes ago because the thought that crossed my mind and that you just shared is had there been an access door open to that man at some point in the preceding months or years, not only think about the notion that the bad things that happened may have not happened, but all the good that would have come out of two more people who were healthy, raising families, members of their community. And this is what we miss in our industry because of that transactional nature. We miss the collective opportunity costs that we bear every single day by not creating those access points and by staying mired in this tired, multi-decade old political discourse that factors around is healthcare a right or not. Honestly, like it's not, it's not that that's that oversimplifies the question or that, that, that I'm always laughing because it's just like, oh, my gosh, well, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like to yeah. me, it's it's an economic exigent. Yes. This is social exigent. Like, mm -hmm. If we were living in a place where we had those access doors in all communities in a ubiquitous and consistent way, regardless of people's sexual orientation, race, educational level, whatever the case may be, we would objectively be producing greater economic outputs, social outputs, and people would just have better lives. And why the hell else are we here mm -hmm. than to enjoy this really fleeting experience we have? Apparently, I'm up on a soapbox around all this today, <laughs> but the work you guys do here, Steph, is it's just it's beautiful. And I thank you for sharing the story about your past. Yeah. Well, and I think... There is so much the healthcare industry can learn from community health and learn from free clinics. And, and we, we have so many opportunities coming out of the last three years to do it differently than we've done it. And, you know, one of my greatest fears is that I don't see that happening fast enough. And community health in the islands of safety we have control over will continue to think and, and do differently for the betterment of the communities that we serve. And I really, you know, call to action other healthcare providers, even myself as a leader. The notion to me that if I just met the patient where they were at, I would solve all these problems. Like, how did that not occur to me until there was a global pandemic? Like, that's sort of ridiculous, right? But but that humility that that I think all leaders should bring to our experience is so key because 
that was foundation that will be foundational to my leadership moving forward and to truly living a growth mindset. And so I really compel other leaders, you know, what are those old thinking patterns that you find yourself in that if you just rattled the cage a little bit, if you didn't ask first, can I bill for it? If you, you know, what would that look like from a solution-based perspective? How could that change your thinking? And until there's a universal government-sponsored funded solution, we all have to try to do one to 5% better every day. Steph, if I'm listening to you right now and I'm super energized and animated and I'm like, oh, I wanna help Steph make the world better. How do I give you money? How do I volunteer? I mean, will you take, you'll take my money. Right? I will definitely take yeah, okay. all of your money. <laughs> how, how do I get involved? How do I support? Yeah. So there are many ways to get involved in, and support community health. You can find out about them on our website, communityhealth.org. That is where you can make a donation. You can also learn about our many volunteer opportunities and apply to become a volunteer. And I also welcome folks reaching out. If you want to see what a free health center looks like, if you're like a micro clinic, tell me more. I'd love to see one of those. We'd love to show you. And I have said that. And you have shown. I have. (laughs) And because I think when we're talking about, you know, rewiring our brains too, sometimes you got to see these things. And so I welcome folks visiting our website, getting involved as volunteers, making a donation, and also just reaching out to become a friend and supporter and learn more, not only about community health as a free clinic, but the entire sector and the impact that we're making on the healthcare ecosystem. The HC3 Podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies. Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.